Thank you, Terry. Appreciate the fact that you're bringing us before the Lord. Um, and it's truly a, a delight and a privilege to be here with you. And uh, we absolutely miss Abner. And he said that he was excited to be back here, but just couldn't because of the voice. So the question is, you know, so what do we go through? Do we just keep going? Do we keep going with Nahum or do we want to leave that portion that he was, he has already been studying uh, so that he can bring that to us? And that's what we decided to do. He's going to bring Nahum the next time, God willing, next Sunday. uh, And we'll go to a different passage today to Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, we'll open that up and we'll see the introduction to God and to history uh, in Genesis 1 and 2. But this, the suddenness of this, uh, just me standing up here, reminds me of an instance where Pastor John was planning to uh, preach on Sunday, and then things came up and he couldn't preach. And my brother happens to be the person who oversees that part of the schedule. And Sunday morning, he gets a call. My brother gets a call from Pastor John and says to him that he can't come in in the morning, and he can't preach this morning, so find another preacher. (laughs) And my my brother says, great, we'll find another preacher, no worries. So my brother calls Austin Duncan, and my brother's not, he's a straight shooter, he's not a small talker, he doesn't say, hey, Austin, how's it going? Hope your morning, Austin's probably drinking coffee in his shorts, not even, you know, it was early in the morning. And so he says, Austin, what are you doing? It doesn't matter, suit up. To suit up. And so Austin came and he preached that Sunday morning. That was, uh, I think that was less than a year ago. That's just a few months ago. So if you heard Austin in the past four or five months in the morning, that was the story behind it. <laughs> um, but let's go to Genesis chapter 1. And I want us to start here. I'd like for us to uh, go to the very, very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. And I want us to look at how God is introduced in this passage, in these few chapters, and to see the response that these chapters prompt from us, which is to glorify God. When we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we see how God is consistent, how his character is consistent all throughout the scriptures. We see how God unifies the scriptures, how he unifies history from beginning to end. And we see how his plan extends from the very outset until the very end. And just as an example, you can think about the end of the Bible and you can ask the question, why is there a dragon in Revelation? Revelation 12.9 says, and the great dragon was thrown down. What's the dragon doing there? Well, the dragon is that serpent who tempted Eve in Genesis 3. And that's what, Genesis, that's what Revelation identifies him as. That great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. You can ask the question, why is there a new heaven? Why is there a new earth at the end of the uh, history? And that's because God created the first heaven and the first earth. And then this heaven, this creation and earth, they were tarnished by sinfulness. And so God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth without sin. Or specifically to our focus today, 
who does all of this activity? Who does all of these things? Who unifies all of this from beginning to end? And Revelation 10.5 answers this question for us. It says that it is the one who created the heaven and, and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it. The end links directly to the beginning that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But understanding the beginning is not only a truth that relates to a theoretical past or to a distant future. It actually and practically relates to the immediate present. Understanding the beginning, understanding the end, teaches us how we are to live today. And the idea here is simple. Because of God's character that is revealed at the very beginning of creation, we are to submit to God and we are to glorify God. That's the point of Revelation 4.11. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. That's Genesis 1 and 2 and following. And this is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1. That when you look at creation, you will see God and you will see the attributes of God. This is Romans 1.20. Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are, so that all people are, without excuse. And that's exactly what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. We see God, and we see the attributes of God. And there is only one proper response to this. There's only one reaction that we can have and that we must have, and that is to glorify God. So let's look at Genesis 1 and 2, and I want to point to seven characteristics of God that are clearly seen, as Paul says, that are clearly seen in these chapters. And the first is that God is the God of existence. God is the God of existence. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God was never created. God never did not exist. God always was. The text clearly, explicitly, unambiguously says, In the beginning, God. The word of God assumes that God always was. And it assumes this because this is the truth. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. That is God. God is ever existent. He, is, he always was, he is, and he always will be. I remember a number of years ago, I read a book called The God Delusion by an atheist uh, named Richard Dawkins. And in this book, he argues that there is no God, and the entire purpose of this book is to persuade the readers that there is no God. In the preface to this book, he writes this. He says, if this book works as I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. When I read the book, when I put it down, I immediately thought I should have read a different book, but... But I thought, I thought, how ironic 
the only reason that Richard Dawkins is able to say that there is no God is because there is a God. If there was no God, there would be no Richard Dawkins. The only reason that Richard Dawkins exists is because God exists, because God created him. And Genesis 1 and 2 presents this very truth that God is and that God always was. And this directly relates to the name of God, the personal name name of God, Yahweh. In Exodus 3, Moses asks God, what is your name? And God says, I am who I am. I am the ever-existing one. There is no beginning. There is no middle. There is no end to me. I simply am. And this is what Jesus meant when he said to the Pharisees in John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And we can ask, well, what do you mean that you were before Abraham? Only God existed before Abraham. That's the point. Only God existed before Abraham, and Jesus is God. And God claims divinity in saying this to the Pharisees. And this is a truth that we must not forget or neglect or take for granted. This is a truth that, we, that must keep us humble and that must remind us who we are and who God is. When Job was suffering and he was upset because his suffering was so great because God allowed it, and then God questions him, what was the very first question that God asked Job? He said, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you in the beginning? In the beginning, God was, but where were you? You weren't there. Well, maybe you shouldn't challenge God then. Maybe you shouldn't accuse God then. Maybe you shouldn't be frustrated with God in that case. Maybe you should trust God that God knows exactly what he is doing. And when Job understands this, he says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I respond to you? I place my hand over my mouth. And this must be our response as well. We must actively remember the fact that God is, that God was, and that God always will be. And this must humble us on the one hand, but this also must prompt us to thank God because this means that we can always come to him because he will always be there to hear us and to understand us and to respond to us and to care for us, to help us. You know, people say, I'm always there for you. And the answer is, no, you're not. (laughs) You are frequently not there. But that's not God. That's not God. God always was, is, and he will always be. Because God is the God of existence. Secondly, God is the God of creation. The text says here, in the beginning, God created. And the only person in the Bible who creates is God. People make things, but God is the only one who creates This word create is used only in reference to God. And the difference is that people have to use the things that God created 
in order to make whatever they're making. But God is the only one who creates. In Genesis 1.1, God creates the heavens and the earth. In 1.21, God creates the sea monsters and every living creature. In 127, God creates man and woman. In Exodus 34.10, God creates miracles. He causes miracles to take place. In Psalm 51.10, God creates a clean heart within us. And in Isaiah 65.17, in the future, God will create the new heavens and the new earth. And God creates everything in an orderly manner. He is a creator of order. When God created all of the elements for the days, he, did, he divided everything so that there would be day one, a second day, a third day, a fourth day, and so on. And the sheer fact that God numbers his days is a sign of order. And we even call these num numbers ordinal numbers because they reflect order. And when God created the first day, he separated the light from the darkness and he made evening and morn morning so that there was day one. He created a literal 24-hour day with light at the right time and darkness at the right time, evening at the right time and morning at the right time, just like we see it right now. But maybe somebody could ask, well, couldn't each day have been longer? Couldn't it have been like 1,000 years long, right? Psalm 90 verse 4 says that one day is like a 1,000 years. Well, not in Genesis chapter 1. If a day is supposed to be viewed figuratively like it is in Psalm 90 verse 4, or if there's something unusual a day, about the day, just like when God stopped the sun in Joshua 10, and the sun stood still, and so the day was longer. If something like this happens, the Bible makes it clear that this is an unusual, atypical, an atypical day. But in Genesis 1, we see a regular day, the day the way that we know it. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> and as God creates these days, he shows that his nature reflects this order within these days. And as we keep reading, we can see that everything that God creates is good. God created light in verse 3, and in verse 4, God saw that it was good. God created animals in verses 24 and 25. God saw that they were good. Everything that God creates, everything that he does is good. In fact, it is very good. Because when God looks at all of his creation in verse 31, he says it is very good. But you will say to me, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God creates man, and God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And the women say, amen. <laughs> this is true. This is true. But then God completes this creation by creating the woman, and it becomes so good that Paul uses this relationship between the man and the woman as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Everything that God creates is very good. And because God is our creator, we must 
we are obligated to proactively remember that our God is the creator and we must glorify him for this. This is exactly what Ecclesiastes 12.1 commands us to do. It says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. This is, just thinking about this, this is exactly what our society is trying to forget, trying to erase, trying to force out of the minds of children and of just society in general to persuade themselves and to persuade everybody else that God is not the creator. And that's why Paul says in Romans 1.18 that the world suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. So to believe evolution, that God is not the creator, it's not only false, it's not only wrong, it's actually sin. Because this contradicts what the scriptures explicitly command us to do. Remember your creator. And this is how Genesis 1 and 2 introduces God to us how the, and how the entire Bible continues to represent and to present God as our creator. Well, thirdly, God is the God of sovereignty. God is the God of sovereignty. You can notice that in Genesis 1 and 2, all creation submits to God. Nothing disobeys. Genesis 1-3, for example, it says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. The light did not contemplate the question that Hamlet so eloquently articulated, to be or not to be. God said, Let there be light. And light was. As soon as God spoke, light became. When God says something, it immediately becomes so. And six times in these passages, when God speaks, the text says, and it was so. In verse 7, God made the expanse and he separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And then it says, and it was so. Verse 11, God caused the vegetation to grow and it was so. Verse 24, God speaks living creatures into existence And it was so. Everything that God commands becomes so. And this is characteristic of God all throughout the Bible, all throughout history, not just in Genesis 1 and 2. I mentioned previously how God split the Red Sea, and it was so. It obeyed. I mentioned just right now in Joshua 10, God commanded the sun to stand still, and the moon to stand still, and they obeyed. In Jonah, God commands the wind, the sea, the fish, the plant, the worm, and they all obey. Thinking bigger than this, in 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah is ill and he's about to die, and God commands his body to continue living, and it lives for another 15 years. In the New Testament, Lazarus dies, And Jesus says to dead Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out alive. These are just a few examples where God's sovereignty is put on display. And there is no end to these examples. And so we can say, how is it that all of these things submit to God? From worm in the ground to human life. Well, God created them. 
Of course they're going to submit to God and they're going to obey God. Whether it's in Genesis 1 or throughout the Old Testament or the New Testament, God demonstrates his sovereignty and his supremacy over everything. And if you ever think that God is not able to do something, just look at these examples in the Bible. Just go through the Bible and see how God's sovereignty controls everything. Whether God wills for something to be part of your life is a question. But the fact that God can do everything, that is not a question. Genesis 1 and 2 very clearly demonstrate that God is sovereign. Fourthly, God is the God of life. God is the God of life. When we read Genesis 1 and 2, we immediately see the fact that God creates life. All the sea animals and land creatures that God created, he gave them all life. When God created humans, he gave them life. The first time that the word life appears in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 30. It says that all the plants that God created, he has given them to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that creeps on the earth, which has life. So every being that God created, animals and humans, God created them and he gave them life. But we know that animals and humans are not the same. And this becomes clear when we see how God creates humans. In Genesis 1.26, we get a general description of God creating mankind. It says in uh, Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now in this verse, the word life does not appear. It's not used there. Uh, so the fact that man is living is implied in this verse. But go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, verse 7. And there we see a specific description of how God creates man. It says in Genesis 2, 7, Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. Job says in Job 33, 4, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Only we humans can say this, because only we humans are the ones that God personally breathed into in order to bring us to life. And then you go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. And as we go to that verse, we see there that the woman becomes the source of our life because all of the earth is then populated through the woman. Genesis 3.20 says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. But here's the question. Why did he call her specifically Eve? What does Eve, the word Eve, have to do with life? Why not call her Elizabeth <laughs> or Carol, Dorothy? Why Eve or Joe? Who said Joe? <laughs> Delete that. <laughs> Joe as in Joanna. Joanna, there you go. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, Joe as in Joanna. Why is it Eve? 
Why call her Eve? Because the word Eve is related to the word life. He named her life. If you read the Greek translation of Genesis, then you will see there that Adam names his wife Zoe. Because in Greek, Zoe, the word Zoe means life. So in Hebrew, you have Adam and Eve. In Greek, you have Adam and Zoe. (laughs) So Zoe is a biblical name as well. But the overall point here is that God created life, and God is the God of life. In fact, the only mention of death in these first two chapters is God warning Adam not to do anything that would cause him death. After God creates man, God says in Genesis 2.16, from any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Death is contrary to God. Death is the enemy of God. And God ultimately will destroy death. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that after God destroys all of his enemies, the last enemy to be abolished is death. And Revelation 21, 4 says that at the very end, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be death. And why will this happen? Because God is the God of life, not death. Death defines the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says that in this fallen world, Satan has the power of death, but God is the God of life. And this is why Christ is raised from death to life. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. And verse 22 later on says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. God is the God of life from the beginning of Genesis until the end of Revelation and for all of eternity. And listen to this in Acts 3.15. Acts 3.15, Peter preaches about the death of Jesus, but he emphasizes the fact that Jesus is the creator of life. Peter says, but you, the Israelites who rejected Christ, he says, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but you put to death the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And then John, in 1 John 5.20, he takes this even one step further. And he says that Christ is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is not only the author of life, he is life itself, according to 1 John 5.20. Why is it that God is the God of life? Because he is eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is why we as believers do not fear death. Because our God is the God, he's the author, he's the creator of life, and he is life itself. This is why we can confidently say with Paul, for to us to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's not fear, it's not loss, it's gain. Because when we die, we enter into eternal life with the God of life. 
Well, number five, God is the God of holiness. God is the God of holiness. And related to God being the God of life, we also see that he represents and manifests holiness. Holiness results in life. Unholiness results in death. We're familiar with these passages that show us that God is holy all throughout the Bible. Leviticus 19.2, God says to the Israelites, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Or the famous passage in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the angels are saying one to another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. And then God demonstrates his holiness all throughout the scriptures by commanding us to live in accordance with this perfect character. This is the point of Matthew 5.48. Jesus says there, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, we must submit to God and we must not sin. If we sin, we reveal that we are not holy and then the result of that is that we die. And we see the holy character of God at the very beginning when God commands Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that he would not die. In Genesis 2.15, and with a few verses after that, God puts Adam in the Garden of Eden and he says to him, from any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. God is showing here that he is perfectly holy, that he is perfectly just. He does not tolerate unholiness. Obey God and live. Disobey God and die. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, God calls us, as Pastor John has put it in the past uh, couple of weeks, God calls us to be obsessed with holiness. One of the books that has mo- most influenced my life outside of the Bible is a book called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. But as you look at that book, you will see that it begins with a discussion, with a chapter on sin. And so you wonder, why does he start his book about holiness on the subject of sin. And here's the answer that he gives why he does this. He says, He that wishes to attain right views about Christian holiness must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. And this makes sense. To be holy, you must hate sin. If you want to see Christ, you must hate sin you must be holy. This is what Hebrews 12, 14 says. Pursue holiness. Pursue sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. If you are not holy, you will not see God because God is holy. Now, you will rightly say, but we are inherently sinful. We're inherently not holy. How can we see God? How can we be with God? And that's true. David says in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, to answer this, from the very beginning that Adam and Eve sinned, God had a plan of redemption. 
He had a plan of redemption to make us holy. And we see this plan in the very first and in that famous prophecy that God himself gives in Genesis 3.15. God is speaking to the serpent who tempted Eve, and God says there, Genesis 3.15, says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, that is the Messiah Jesus, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So at the very beginning, God promises that Christ will crush the devil and that Christ will achieve salvation for us. And by this, he will make us holy. Listen to Hebrews 10.10. We have been sanctified. That is, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we are able to be with God because we are forgiven and we are made holy in Christ. From the very beginning, God shows that he does not tolerate sin because he is holy. And from the very beginning, he shows that anyone who wants to be with God must be made holy through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Number six. God is the God of complex unity, or a term that we call the Trinity. At the very outset of the Bible, we see that God is a complex unity. We know that God is one. We worship God as one. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And we see this throughout the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 8.6. Paul says, for us, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. There is no question about the fact that we worship one God. At the same time, as you look at these passages, even in the passage here that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, we see that God is a complex unity because Paul refers to God the Father and God the Son as one God. And when we look at Genesis 1, we see this very same truth. In Genesis 1.26, God is speaking about creating mankind and God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The complex unity of God comes out here when God uses the plural us and our. And he's referring to himself as one God. He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then when he does actually create the text, uh, create man, the text shifts to singulars. And it says, and God created man in his image, singular, in the image of God, he created him. You look at this and you at least wonder, how is it that God says us and our, and yet God is one? And the answer is that God is a complex unity. He is the Trinity. But this isn't the only place in the Bible that God reveals himself as a complex unity. In Genesis 11, when the people are trying to build the Tower of Babel, God is displeased with this. 
And so in Genesis eleven seven, God, the one God, he says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language of the people. God uses the plural us once again. Another example, in Genesis 18 and 19, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. And then in Genesis 19, 24, it describes this event and it says this, Genesis 19, 24. And Yahweh reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. Yahweh rained fire from Yahweh. Are there two gods here? Well, the answer is obviously no. There are two persons mentioned here, but there is one God. And as we see all of these cases, we see that God is a complex unity. And then in the New Testament, we begin to understand this much more precisely as we see that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are three in one. And we, rec- we recognize the triunity or the trinity of God as something that describes and is inherent to who God is. Now, the implication of this is that because God is a triune God, we have an example for us of perfect unity and perfect love. In Genesis, in uh, John, I should say, John 17, 21, Jesus prays for his disciples and all of those who believe in him, it says, which includes you and me. Jesus prays that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Christ prays that there would be love and unity between the believers just as there is love and unity between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And this perfect love and unity is ultimately what we see in the perfect reign of God, God the Father and God the Son, at the end times as well. Revelation eleven fifteen says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The only reason that God the Father and God the Son with the power of God the Holy Spirit can rule over one kingdom in peace is because God is three in one. Every other attempt in human history to reign, to, uh, for people to reign over a kingdom has resulted in warfare. Russia and Ukraine, case in point. But God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit will reign in unity because of the perfect love and unity within the Godhead. This perfect triunity is a characteristic of God that we see from the very beginning of the creation of the world throughout the scriptures into the New Testament And then at the very end of history, when God the Father and God the Son rule over the kingdom together and they reign as one. And seventh, God is the God of rest. God is the God of rest. After God created the universe and all that is in the universe, it says that God rested. Genesis 2 verses 1 and 2 says this. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And on the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Now you, you look at this, you say, but God doesn't need rest. Why is God resting? Well, he rested not because he was tired in some way. He rested in the sense that he stopped working. This word rest means to cease from working. And uh, when he stopped working, he blessed and he sanctified that seventh day, or literally he set it apart as holy. So unlike the other six days, God devoted the seventh day specifically to celebrating the work that he had done and all of the work that he completed in the first six days. And these verses, verses 1 and 2, they repeat the word complete to, uh, to emphasize the fact that God was celebrating and he was enjoying the work that was now complete. Now, the rest, this rest that these verses talk about, this rest of the seventh day was so precious to God. It was so important to God that God determined that the people of God must enjoy this rest as well. And to make this happen, God first gave the Israelites the commandment to keep the Sabbath so that they too would enjoy this rest that God enjoyed, that they would focus on God. Exodus 20 verse 8 says this, God says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And the word Sabbath itself, the word means rest or cease from working. So God is saying to the Israelites here, remember the day of rest. Or you can look at it this way, remember the cease from work day. That's what this word means. And then verse 9 explains that God gave this command to the Israelites to set the day aside, to focus on God, specifically to experience what God experienced. He wanted them to experience what he experienced. Exodus 29 says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work. Verse 11, For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Why should you keep the Sabbath? Because God rested on the Sabbath. God wanted the Israelites to experience the Sabbath just like he experienced rest on the seventh day. And then later in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it repeats this command, and it gives an additional application of this uh, element of rest within the command. And the implication is that Uh, The Israelites are to rest from their work and they're to focus on God because God gave them rest from slavery in Egypt. In Deuteronomy 5.15, it says, You shall remember the day you were a slave in the land of Egypt and Yahweh your God brought you out of there. Therefore, Yahweh your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. He wanted them to experience what God experienced, and now he wanted them to understand that uh, the fact that he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, he caused them to have this rest, and he wanted them to remember this as they rested on the Sabbath day. And this commandment was so important. It was so important to experience what God experienced 
that any violation of this would result in death. This is Exodus 31.15. But at the same time, the Sabbath was intended to serve man, not for man to be enslaved to the Sabbath. And this is what Jesus says in Mark 2.27. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This is the commandment that God gave to keep the Sabbath. Now, in addition to this commandment, because God wanted the Israelites to have rest, to experience what God experienced, God determined to give the Israelites rest by bringing them into the promised land. Now, even though as you read this, you will see that the text is slightly different. The words are slightly different. The concept is the same. In Joshua 1.13, it says, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you, saying, Yahweh your God gives you rest and will give you this land. God desired for the Israelites to have even a glimpse of rest, a glimpse of peace on this earth, and so he brought them into the promised land. That was God's desire for the Israelites. The problem with this was that Moses and Joshua they couldn't give the Israelites the ultimate rest that they desired. And so the author of Hebrews picks up on this idea. He returns to this promise of God to give the people rest. And he says that this rest can be experienced only in Jesus, the Messiah. The author of Hebrews brings these two concepts together. One is of rest on the Sabbath day, which God enjoyed. And then the other is of rest by entering into the promised land. And the author of Hebrews says that, the, that only Jesus can provide this ultimate and eternal rest. In Hebrews 4.8, the author of Hebrews says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day after that. But he did. He promised them rest after he brought them into the promised land. So the author of Hebrews continues in verse 9, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God yet still. And this was Jesus' offer of himself as the source of this, this all-encompassing rest. When Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So from the very beginning of creation, God demonstrates that God is the God of rest. And not only does he experience this rest himself, he also desires and he offers for us to experience this rest along with him. Well, this is the God who is revealed at the very beginning of Genesis in Genesis 1 and 2 and portions of 3 as well as throughout all of scriptures. And when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, you see all of this about God, and then you, you see and you begin to understand why Paul says that we are without excuse, why all humanity is without excuse when they see everything around them and when they then choose to reject God. Because since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. So the only acceptable response to all of this revelation about God is for us to submit to God and for us to glorify God. There is no other 
acceptable response. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we have all of the scriptures. And we are so grateful that we can look at the very first few pages of scriptures and we can understand who you are, how you function, how you love us, how you have given yourself for us, how you have revealed yourself to us, and Lord, how you bring us to yourself. Lord, I pray that we would not let this truth fall on deaf ears. Pray that we would not be resistant to this truth. I pray, Lord God, that we would submit to your word and that we would submit to you and that our response would be to worship you, to see how glorious you are and for us to love you. Lord, we thank you. We do love you. And we just thank you that we can be here together studying your word. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.